Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We are at a point in the book of Ezekiel where, to very quickly review, Ezekiel is in Babylon and he is prophesying why it is that God is doing the things to Judah that he is doing and why he has allowed Babylon to conquer Judah and for people to be carried away into bondage. That's the first section of the book. The middle section of the book that we're in right now is God also talking to the Gentile nations that surround Israel and God saying that the way that they have mocked and made fun of Israel is the reason that God is also going to pour out his uh, wrath and his punishment on them. And tonight we are going to start in chapter 29 and for the next four chapters Ezekiel is going to be prophesying against Egypt. But at this point, the emphasis is going to change from you mocked Israel to Israel trusted you. Israel counted on you. Israel made an agreement with you that you were going to be partners in the fight against Babylon. And when they really needed you, when Babylon came down on them, and when I turned Israel over to Babylon, at that point they were counting on you to come fight for them, and you didn't do it. And so God is going to liken them to a cane made out of reeds. A man would rest his hand on and put his weight on it, and then it would fold because it's a reed after all. And then it would cut the man's hand, and so it would be no good at all as a cane. And so that's the next four chapters. And then God is going to return to the subject of the restoration and the future of Israel and what he is going to do to regather and restore Israel. And after those prophecies, we get into the ultimate prophecy of a temple that hasn't been established yet and the prophecies of God regathering Israel, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing the priesthood, reestablishing sacrifices, and that simply hasn't happened yet. So we assume all of that is future. So right now we're kind of in the middle of the book. And I know last week was a bit of a record for me. I did three chapters in one night. But four chapters for Egypt might just be more than I can bite off in a night. So I know I can feel the disappointment in the room. And so we're going to try to get through two of these chapters because there are some theological things that we can consider along the way. And then we'll do the other two chapters next week. But uh, I know that that puts the pressure on me because you all know exactly what it is I'm going to be talking about next week. And you could be eating dinner next Wednesday night and saying, uh, we don't need to go to church tonight. He's just going to be doing the other half of the Egypt thing. And really, how does that apply to us? So I'm going to be, oh, don't point at her. And so I'm going to try to make it as interesting as I can possibly make it tonight so that it'll bring you back next week. So let me, by way of introduction, read a couple little segments out of a couple of different commentaries that will kind of summarize what we're about to get into here. The seventh and final nation that Ezekiel prophesied against is Egypt. By the way, this is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. This prophecy was actually a series of seven oracles directed against Egypt and its pharaoh. Each oracle is introduced by the clause, the word of the Lord came to me, and six of the seven oracles are dated. And so we can actually see that they are running sequentially with the exception of one. Though 29.1, 30.20, 31.1, 32.1, and 32.17 are in chronological order, there is the second oracle, 29.17, that is dated much later than all the others. In fact, it's dated so late that it's the latest prophecy that we find in the whole book of Ezekiel. And yet it's listed as the second of these oracles. 
This departure from the usual chronological arrangement, they say, is probably because Ezekiel wanted to arrange the oracles in a logical progression. He possibly placed it where he did to clarify his first prophecy. After predicting that the Pharaoh and Egypt would be destroyed, he then specified who it was that would destroy them. This first of seven prophecies against Egypt was given in the 10th year, on the 10th month, on the 12th day. That would be January 5th, 587 B.C., and that was almost a year after the siege of Jerusalem had begun. So the pharaoh in Egypt at the time was named Hophra, who reigned from 589 to 570 B.C. His promises of assistance prompted Judah to break with Babylon. Both Egypt and her leader are then singled out for judgment because of their lack of living up to the promises they had made to Israel, which is really, really interesting to me yet again that God in his absolute sovereignty can punish people and reward people for doing precisely what he knew they were going to do and what he prophesied they were going to do. In fact, as we go through chapter 28 here, you're going to see where God talks about the fact that Babylon spent seven years attacking Tyre, and when they finally conquered Tyre, God's going to say, but they didn't really get a reward out of it. In other words, they weren't really able to pay the armies out of what they got out of Tyre once they had conquered it. And so God says he's going to give them Egypt and all the riches and rewards of Egypt since they didn't get anything out of Tyre. And God says that's because Babylon is doing the things I want them to do. So he's actually rewarding them for doing it, even though he's ultimately going to punish them because they did it against Israel which is the exact reason that God raised them up in the Middle East so that they would conquer Israel so that God could use them in order to punish Israel. But then he's going to punish the surrounding Gentile nations for the way they mocked Israel because it was God that brought Israel down. And then because Babylon brought Israel and the surrounding nations down and one of those surrounding nations didn't give them any real payoff, he's then going to give them Egypt so that they do get paid off for what they did. And then he's going to punish them for the way they treated Israel. Does that make any sense? Sounds like he's in control. Sounds like a God who's completely... I ask God first. Completely in control. I'm glad he can keep track of it, because no matter how hard I think it through and try to state it, it's just mind-boggling. Now, this is a little bit out of the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary. Speaking of Pharaoh, because this is really about the judgment on Egypt and the judgment on Pharaoh very particularly... A common name for all the kings of Egypt was Pharaoh, meaning the son. And the reason this is important is because other translations say that it can be translated as crocodile because Pharaoh meant the great monster of the river Nile. And so God is going to make reference to that. He's going to mock him for being the monster of the river Nile and say, I'm going to take you out of your river, which you think you made because you think you're a god, when in fact I created the great Nile. I fed Egypt off the tributaries of the Nile. You didn't do it. You just think you're the great monster of the Nile. And so I'm going to pluck you and your fish up out of the Nile and put you in a desert place. That'll show you thinking you're a sea monster. And so it's important to know that even the name Pharaoh has that connection to it. And he was worshipped in parts of Egypt. Hophra, who I already mentioned, who sometimes is known as Pharaoh Apries, was on the throne at the time of this prophecy. His reign began prosperously. He took Gaza, you can read about that in Jeremiah 47.1, and Zidon, and he made himself master of Phoenicia and of Palestine recovering much that was lost to Egypt by the victory of Nebuchadnezzar at Carchemish. By the way, I just have to add this. This is religion gone crazy wrong. One of the ways that Carchemish fell was that Nebuchadnezzar's armies, as they were approaching Carchemish, led their army with dogs and cats because the Egyptians worshipped dogs and cats. 
They couldn't attack the approaching armies of Nebuchadnezzar that are headed their way because the army was led by kitties and puppies. Real clever on Nebuchadnezzar's part, but kind of funny because that's what idol worship is all about. It's, it's completely misunderstanding what it is that is uh, precious and what it is that isn't. It's kind of like the folks in India to this very day that are starving while they have cows in the streets. And they worship the cows, so they won't eat the cows, but they're starving. It's, it's worship gone awry. Anyway, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim is when all of this took place and when Carchemish fell. So proudly secure because of his successes for his 25 years, he felt that he himself was a god and that no one could deprive him of his kingdom. You'd have to read the historian Herodotus to see that, but Herodotus writes about the astounding ego of Pharaoh and his multiple boasts that not even a god could take him down from his kingdom. Hence, it was very appropriate of the description of him in Ezekiel 29 that we're about to read in 29.3 in particular, where he says, you think this is your Nile, you think you are a god. No mere human could have enabled Ezekiel to foresee Egypt's downfall when it was at the height of its prosperity. So there are four divisions of these prophecies. The first is in the 10th year of Ezekiel's captivity, and the last is in the 12th year of Ezekiel's captivity. But between the first and the second comes one of a much, much later date, as I've already mentioned, not having been given until the 27th year of his captivity. But it's placed there because it's, again, appropriate subject matter. Pharaoh Hophra, or Apres, was dethroned and strangled, and Amasis was substituted as king by Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, if you would, Tom, look up Jeremiah 44.3, because in this prophecy against Egypt and against his pharaoh, God says very specifically that that pharaoh that thought he was a god was going to be destroyed, and that's exactly what happened to him when he was dethroned and then strangled, and then Nebuchadnezzar puts a king a puppet king in place. Jeremiah 44.30 mentions Pharaoh Hophra. Yeah, have you got that? He's, he's turning quickly. 44.30. 44.30. What did I say previously? 44.30. Okay. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the hand of his enemies and into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. So the same way that God turned Zedekiah over, he said, I'm going to turn the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, over to those who are going to hate him, and he's going to be destroyed. So there was a civil war there for a short time between Pharaoh Hophra and Amasis, and as that civil war erupted between those two rivals lasting apparently a couple of years, that afforded an opportunity for Nebuchadnezzar to come in and interfere and elevate the usurper Amasis on the condition of his becoming a tributary to Babylon. So that's all the background for what we're about to read. You just need to know that much of the background in order to make sense out of this chapter because some of the language is very symbolic. But once you know the details I just laid out, it all of a sudden becomes real obvious what God's talking about through Ezekiel. So, Ezekiel 29.1, that's the end of the introduction. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, of the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers. That's why you had to know that the word Pharaoh can be translated as great monster or as crocodile, because there were many crocodiles in the Nile River who were also worshipped the same way that they worshipped kitties and puppies, which I really just said to make April smile, 
because the previous time that I said kitties and puppies, she got a big smile on her face. She likes kitties and puppies. And she likes the idea of Carchemish being overthrown by kitties and puppies. So, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers, that has said, my Nile is mine, and I myself have made it. Okay, now, to understand Egypt a little bit, you have to understand that there's a northern and a southern kingdom, and that the northern kingdom is actually known as the, uh, the Fertile Crescent, because along either side of the Nile River, you could plant things and it would grow, even though so much of that part of northern Africa is actually desert, that part of Egypt was very fertile because of the Nile. So the Nile was life as far as they were concerned. And then it broke into several tributaries as it went into southern Egypt. But here's where it gets confusing. The Fertile Crescent is actually in the lowlands in northern Egypt. So that's actually known as Lower Egypt. So Northern Egypt is Lower Egypt. Southern Egypt is known as Upper Egypt. And so we don't think that way. We think in terms of geography. We think of Kentucky, as, which is north of us, as being up there. But you have to think exactly different when you think about Egypt because the land was higher in the south, so that's known as Upper Egypt. So Northern Egypt is known as Lower Egypt. So here's what God says. My Nile is mine. I myself have made it. He was claiming that he was the reason for the life-giving power of the Nile through all of Egypt. And so God continues talking to him as if he is a sea creature. And he says, and I will put hooks in your jaws. And I shall make the fish of your rivers cling to your scales, and I shall bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish of your rivers will cling to your scales. I can only assume that all the fish are all the other leaders, all the other governors, all the people that are in power because of Pharaoh giving them their authority. God is going to gather all of them up, put a hook in his jaw, pull them out of the river, Verse 5, and I shall abandon you to the wilderness, you and the fish of your rivers. And you will fall in an open field. Really bad place for a sea monster to be. You should not put them in an open field or a deserted place. God says, that's what I'm going to do to you. I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. And you will fall on the open field. You will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky. So the, the animals of the planet are going to eat the meat of your bones the same way that the carrion birds are going to pluck away at you. That's a curse that God says several times in the Bible. You see it all the way over in the book of Revelation that the birds of the sky are called to the great feast of the kings after the Armageddon has taken place. So this is something that God says repeatedly about the people he is going to punish, that they are going to become food for animals and for carrion birds. I have given you for food to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the sky. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. In what way will they know that? Well, they're going to know that because Ezekiel's prophesying it before it happens. Ezekiel is prophesying against Egypt when it's at the very zenith of its power. It is the primary power other than Babylon in the Middle East at that time. Babylon to the north, Egypt to the south. It's got great wealth, great riches, great political power, tremendous tracts of land, and, and fertile land at that, and so it has a lot of riches and a lot of authority and Ezekiel comes along and says God says he's going to destroy you and destroy Pharaoh and so when that happens then the people are going to realize oh didn't Ezekiel say something like this oh yeah well it was his God that spoke to him who told him this was going to happen now that it did happen they are all going to know that I am the Lord and this is especially poignant when you remember that the Egyptians had a whole pantheon of gods. They had a whole bunch of gods, not just kitties and puppies. They had a, <laughs> I'm going to ride that until it's not funny anymore. 
that they, they had a whole pantheon of gods, everything from the sun to insects. That's why the plagues against Egypt all the way back in Moses' time were all connected in some way to the various gods of Egypt while God Yahweh was showing his superiority to all those gods, none of whom could stop him from doing the things that he did against Egypt. And so here again, God is demonstrating that he is the only real sovereign Lord and that even the Egyptian Pharaoh who thinks of himself as a god is clearly not a god and that none of the gods of Egypt are going to be able to stop him from doing what he wants to do. So as a consequence, people are going to have to conclude, well, oh yeah, Ezekiel said this was going to happen and it did happen. His God must be Lord. So God is proving that he is Lord by bringing about all these calamities on Egypt. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Because they have been, this is the connection to a cane or a staff made out of a reed, because they have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. In other words, the house of Israel leaned on them like a cane, like a support, expecting them to hold them up, and they just folded the way grass would fold. You wouldn't make a cane out of blades of grass and then lean on it because it's just going to collapse under your weight. Well, he's saying that's what you are, Egypt, and it is because of that that I'm going to destroy you and destroy your Pharaoh because you have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. By the way, it's also interesting that God would use that example because the river Nile was full of these kind of reeds. You could find these reeds all up and down the river Nile. So God decided to use one of the characteristics of Egypt in order to say, you're just like those reeds. You're, you're as, as useless as a cane made out of the grass that grows out of the Nile. That's what Moses' basket was made of, because it's plenty available. It's everywhere. Because you have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel, when they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their hands. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins quake. So as a result of you, my people Israel were all terrified as Babylon entered, as Babylon took them into captivity. And meanwhile, they were trusting you to come help, and you didn't. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, verse 8, Behold, I shall bring upon you a sword, and I shall cut off from you man and beast. And the land of Egypt will become a desolation and a waste, and then they will know that I am the Lord because you said the Nile is mine. I have made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your rivers. And I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation from Migdal to Syene and even to the borders of Ethiopia. Ethiopia lays to the south of Egypt and the reference to Migdal to Syene is that is the northernmost fortified city to the southernmost. And so God is saying the whole thing of Egypt. Verse 11, a man's foot will not pass through it. And the foot of a beast will not pass through it. And it will not be inhabited for 40 years. Now what's interesting about that is, of course, 40 years is the number of judgment that you see time and time again through the Bible. But also, given that Ezekiel tells us pretty much when this is going to happen, and then he has the prophecies afterwards about the fact that it did happen, and then if you count 40 years forward, you get to the time of the conquering of Babylon by the Medo-Persians, by Cyrus, and that happens 32 to 34 years into these 40 years, and so it would have taken a few years before Cyrus would have allowed that the Egyptians could go back to their land and rebuild the same way that he did with the Israelites. So actually, this prophecy of 40 years plays out in human history. I can't find an exact calendar 
year-by-year description of the events where I can say for you this is exactly how it lays out. But as you know, the history of the Middle East and the deportation of the Egyptians and the proclivity of the Babylonians to take people into captivity and then the proclivity of the Medo-Persians to let them go back to their own land, that plays out to about 40 years. And because I trust God, I expect that when I get to heaven and say, what was that all about? He'll show me that it was actually completely 40 years. But you can find in Middle Eastern history a 40-year gap where that probably would have happened. After this time, Egypt, even to this very day, never again became the great dominant kingdom that it once was. The Egyptian dynasty doesn't exist anymore. So after this time, they never really did make it back to the power and the authority that they once had. Which is why verse 12 can say, So I shall make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated lands. Why? Because I'm going to do that to all the surrounding kingdoms around Israel. Everywhere from Tyre to Edom to Moab to Ammon and then all the way down into Egypt. So they're going to be yet another desolated land in the midst of desolated lands. And her cities, in the midst of her cities that are laid waste, will be desolate 40 years. And I shall scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them from among the lands. For thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I shall gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered. Okay, well, the indication is that that actually happened. And to this day, like I said, Egypt still exists. Notice how similar the language is, though. Because God also promises that he's going to gather Israel from all the lands where he has scattered them and bring them back and reestablish them. And so you see a precursor of that in the way that God has dealt with this Gentile nation, in the way that he has dealt with Egypt. And if he can reestablish Egypt and keep it going all these years, he can reestablish Israel and keep them going all these years. So thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I'm going to gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they were scattered, and I shall turn the fortunes of Egypt and shall make them return to the land of Pathros. A lot of uh, historians and uh, geologists, geographists, would that be the right word, argue that Egypt actually developed out of the land of Pathros, and God confirms that here. He's going to take them back to the land of Pathros to the land of their origin, and there they will become a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowest of kingdoms, and it will never again lift itself up above the nations. And I shall make them so small that they will not rule over the nations. Does Egypt to this day rule over other nations? No. And it will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel. In other words, the house of Israel is never going to count on Egypt again. They should have learned their lesson that when they leaned on Egypt, that Egypt let them down. And as a consequence, they're never again going to be the confidence of the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. Next oracle. Now in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. This is the beginning of the prophecy that I said is probably the latest prophecy that we have in the book of Ezekiel. It's in the 27th year of his captivity. But because it has to do with the downfall of Pharaoh and the downfall of Egypt, as these were compiled and listed, It is included at this point. So in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald and every shoulder was rubbed bare. Probably what that means is as they labored for seven years, laboring hard against Tyre, they would have been wearing helmets all that time, which may have rubbed their heads raw or made their heads bald. And their shoulders were worn down because of all the lifting and the carrying and the labor that they had to put into it. 
land bridge out to time? No, that would have been Alexander the Great that threw Sidon into the sea. That, that also had to have been a lot of labor, but that was only for seven months, whereas this took a much longer time. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, and every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for the labor that they had performed against it. So after performing all that time against Tyre and finally conquering Tyre, they really didn't get that many riches out of it. So listen to what God says, starting at verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder, and it will be wages for his army. That means that God was not only concerned with making sure that Nebuchadnezzar conquered the specific areas that God wanted conquered. He wanted to make sure that the soldiers who labored hard until their shoulders hurt and they were bald of head, no comments please, after all that, not getting paid for that many years of labor out of taking Tyre, God gives them Egypt because Egypt has plenty of wealth so that the soldiers get paid. That is absolute sovereignty. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, which he performed because they, those soldiers, acted for me, declares the Lord God. So God is now paying the Babylonian army by giving them Egypt because they have performed all the conquering activity that God ordained for them to do and in conquering Israel and all the surrounding lands and Tyre they had performed exactly what God had said they were going to perform so then God paid them for doing it that's remarkable to me Gentile armies that got paid by God for doing what God wanted them to do and he made a special effort to do it because Tyre didn't have enough. So I'm going to make sure you get paid. So I'm going, to get, I'm going to make sure you get paid. Can you read this any other way? I've given him the land of Egypt for his labor, which he performed because they acted for me, declares the Lord God. And on that day, I shall make a horn sprout for the house of Israel, and I shall open your mouth in their midst then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, this doesn't apparently have to do with the fact that Ezekiel's tongue was made to cling to the roof of his mouth and then God released his tongue so that he could speak because we also see the fulfillment of that coming up. When men had come from Jerusalem to tell him that Jerusalem had fallen, that's when God loosed his tongue. Instead, what this seems to be saying is that now that you've put all these prophecies in front of Israel, and in front of the surrounding nations, and they haven't understood them, and they don't get what you're saying, and they don't understand any of it, when all of this comes to pass, I'm going to open your mouth in their midst. In other words, they're going to hear the prophecies. They're going to read the prophecies. They're going to understand that everything you said actually came true, and you're going to be recognized as a prophet in that day. But then there's this interesting messianic phrase, on that day I shall make a horn, which is a sign of power, a symbol of power all the way through the Bible. You see the little horn all the way in Revelation, who then becomes the dominant horn because it's a, an emblem of power. On that day I shall make a horn sprout for the house of Israel. That can only be a Christological reference. That can only be the Christ that's going to come to establish Israel. Well, I've got 15 minutes, so we're going to go on to verse 30. Okay, so maybe we will make at least two of these chapters. So good. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day. For the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds a time of doom for the nations and a sword will come upon Egypt and anguish will be in Ethiopia when the slain fall in Egypt. 
They take away her wealth, and her foundations are torn down. Now, notice here that this day of judgment from God is referred to as the day of the Lord. That's phraseology that we should be familiar with. Because in our eschatological studies, we've seen that the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord, is the time of the final Antichrist, the time that is described by Daniel. And then you see fulfillments of it in the book of Revelation. And it is described as a time of God's judgment. God takes complete responsibility for it, even though he uses the armies of the earth to accomplish it. So even though he says it is the day of the Lord, this is a day of the Lord's punishment, he's actually accomplishing it through Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, who he himself paid. So he's doing it through secondary means. He's doing it through the armies of the earth. He's doing it through human beings who really want to do that anyway. I mean, getting out there and conquering is exactly what armies do and what kings do. So they want to fulfill their own desire, and yet they end up doing exactly what God has said they are going to do. The important thing to see here is that even though the people of the planet are doing it, the destruction of Egypt, because it's predicted by God and empowered by God, is referred to as the day of the Lord. Take all that reality and apply it to the future day of the Lord to come, because it also is going to belong completely and utterly to God. It's God's doing. It's God's determination. That's why God prophesied that he's going to do those things. But he's going to do it through human agencies. That's the point. He's going to do it through the Antichrist to come. He's going to do it through the false prophet to come. He's going to do it through a ten-toed nation that he's going to collect and that is going to be ruled over by the, the little horn, the man of sin. And so should we think of that when it occurs, should we think of that as judgment that's coming from the human agency or should we think of that as wrath that is coming from God well biblically we should think of it as wrath that is coming from God even though it's coming through human agency which shows you yet again that God is in charge of all the nations of the earth all the kings of the earth all the political machinations of human beings and that whatever conquering human beings do it's only the conquering that God allows to happen because it all works out according to his plan and his determination of one nation and another. One's going to be taken down, one's going to be lifted up, one king's going to be raised up, another one's going to be taken down, but all of it is summarized as being under the hand of an absolutely sovereign God who can bring about judgments that he calls the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay. That's what it says. Really, that was your commentary? Well, that's what it says. Well, good. Well, I didn't have to convince anybody then. The only reason that I sort of stress that point, and it's only because, as I told Jeff last night, there are some people who are never happy unless they're unhappy. There are some people who are only happy if their life is surrounded by drama. Uh, I'm only happy if I have some theological nugget to obsess over. And so I'm, I'm always thinking through these theological implications and ideas and there is a theology out there right now an eschatology out there right now that says that the time of trouble coming on the planet such as never was or ever would be again will start with several years of what they refer to as antichrist tribulation and they never refer to the tribulation the great without calling it antichrist tribulation and then the rest of their eschatology is built on that assumption that it is Antichrist tribulation. But you can't get that out of this. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar's day. This isn't punishment from Nebuchadnezzar. This is punishment from God. And God calls it the day of the Lord. The day of God's punishment, even though he uses the secondary agencies of human beings, human armies, and human leaders. And that doesn't change when you get to the book of Revelation and you see God implementing a seven-year period, a time of trouble specifically called Jacob's trouble, and he's pouring out that trouble through an agency known as the Antichrist, but it's still God's tribulation. It's not Antichrist's tribulation. Does that make sense? Now, for the few of you who know which eschatology I'm talking about, 
then you probably tracked right with me. For those of you who don't know, you kind of went, well, that was a waste of five minutes, Jim. Thanks for that. Even though the day of the Lord is near, it is going to be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations, and a sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish will be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, they take away her wealth, and her foundations are torn down. Ethiopia put Lud, all Arabia, Libya, and all the people of the land that is in league will fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord. Indeed, those who support Egypt will fall, and the pride of her power will come down from Migdal to Syene, and they will fall with her by the sword, declares the Lord God, and they will be desolate in the midst of the desolated lands, and her cities will be in the midst of the devastated cities, and they will know that I am the Lord when I set fire to Egypt and all her helpers are broken. When Nebuchadnezzar's armies invaded Egypt, the same way they did to Israel, they lit fires everywhere. Fire is a very effective way to destroy cities. God said, I'll set fire to Egypt. Did God actually set the fires? No, the armies of, of Nebuchadnezzar set the fires. But God personally says, I'm doing that. I'm in charge of that. I'm burning Egypt, but I'm doing it through human agencies. And they will know that I am the Lord when I set fire to Egypt and all her helpers, all the surrounding nations that supported Egypt are all broken. And on that day, messengers will go forth from me in ships to frighten secure Ethiopia. And anguish will be on them as on the day of Egypt, for behold, it comes. So the surrounding nations like Ethiopia that are counting on the strength of Egypt in order to keep them safe and secure, there are going to be messengers that come down the Nile and through the tributaries all the way down to Ethiopia and are going to bring messages that Egypt is falling, Egypt's on fire, and that's going to make Ethiopia scared going to make Ethiopia go, oh no, if Egypt has fallen, we're next. For behold, it comes. And thus says the Lord God, I will also make the multitude of Egypt cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. There's about as clear a statement as you could ask for, for what I've been drilling for the last 10 minutes, that it's God who's doing it, but he's doing it through human agencies. I will make the multitude of Egypt cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to do it, but I'm doing it through him. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of nations. By the way, does that say that God uses ruthless nations in order to accomplish his will? That's what it says. That's what it says. God can use the sinful proclivities of human beings to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish, which again... I know I sound like a broken record, but which, again, is real sovereignty, genuine sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar proclaimed the sovereignty of God after he Sure he did. he recovered. He said God puts in who he wants and takes down. That's right. When he needed a haircut and a manicure. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of nations, will be brought in to destroy the land. And they will draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. Moreover, I will make the Nile canals dry and sell the land into the hands of evil men. And I will make the land desolate and everything that is in it by the hand of strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis. Memphis was the capital of, I want to say, Lower Egypt. So I will say it, and then I'll probably be wrong. But that was one of the largest collections of idols anywhere in Egypt, collections of temples, places of worship. And so God very specifically says that he's going to destroy that city, Memphis, specifically because he's going to destroy all of those idols that are there. 
the Lord God has said, I will destroy all the idols and I will make the images cease from Memphis. And there will no longer be a prince in the land of Egypt. And I will put fear in the land of Egypt. And I will make Pathros desolate. I will set fire to Zoan. These are the major walled cities in Egypt. I will execute judgments on Thebes. And I will pour out my wrath on sin. Not sin as in sinfulness, but there was a city named Sin. The strongholds of Egypt. I will also cut off the multitude of Thebes. And I will set fire to Egypt. Sin will writhe in anguish. Thebes will be breached. And Memphis will have distress daily. The young men of On and Pi-Beseth will fall by the sword. And the women will go into captivity. And in Tahafnehes, the day will be dark. When I break there the yoke bars of Egypt, then the pride of her power will cease in her, a cloud will cover her, and her daughters will go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, and they will know that I am the Lord. And it came about in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And behold, it has not been bound up for healing or wrapped with a bandage that it may be strong to hold a sword. In other words, God is saying, I've broken the power of the, the Pharaoh of Egypt. But he likens it to breaking his arm. Now, the reason that this is an almost funny example is that after God has said I've broken his arm so that he can't hold a sword anymore so that he can't fight anymore he can't fight in battle anymore then God's going to say and then I'm going to break both his arms the good one and the broken one so God really doesn't want Egypt or the Pharaoh to ever be able to fight again son of man I have broken the arm of Pharaoh king of Egypt and behold, it has not been bound up for healing or wrapped with a bandage that it may become strong to hold a sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and I will break his arms, both the strong one and the broken one, and I will make the sword fall from his hand, and I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. For I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon. So why can't Pharaoh fight? Why can't the armies of Pharaoh fight? Because God has broken both their arms, so there's no way they can lift a sword, so they can't fight back. But then God says, I'm going to strengthen the arms of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So God is in charge of who is winning these wars. I will scatter the Egyptians among the lands and disperse them among the lands, for I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword into his hand. And I will break the arms of Pharaoh so that he will groan before him with the groanings of a wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh will fall. Then they will know that I am the Lord." When I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. When I scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands, then they will know that I am the Lord. How many times have we heard that phrase? Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Then they will know that I am the sovereign one. Then they will know that I am the only God. Then they will know that I am. The other gods am not. I am God. I am the only God. That's why the commandments start with, you'll have no other God before me. How many times does God keep saying, then they will know that I'm the Lord. Does it sound like God is very interested in getting people to understand that he is the only God? Because he's doing... It would be an interesting count because I haven't counted it. It's probably somewhere in some database somewhere. Sounds like God wants people to know that. 
Yeah. He's a God that will reveal himself, but he also doesn't like the fact that even Gentile nations, nations that he is destroying, he doesn't like the fact that they have other gods. He doesn't like the, the notion that there are any human beings worshiping anything else because he's the only one that deserves worship. He keeps saying, I am a jealous God. He is a God who demands that the nations of the earth, friend or foe, recognize him as the only God. That's right. But then again, if you're God and you're that majestic and you're that perfect and you're that holy and you're that righteous, would you actually want to be compared to chunks of wood and stone? You wouldn't. You'd want to make sure people knew, hey, 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 me. It's only me. It's all me. And whatever happens on this planet, it's me. Whatever kings rise up, that's me. Whatever nations go down, that's me. What you see, that's me. Every nation that's, that is destroyed, that's me. And then they have the audacity, the temerity, the ego to say, no, it's that stone that I carved that is the reason for all this. Or no, it's that idol I made of wood and carry around with three of my friends. He's responsible. It's the puppies and kitties that are responsible. I'm going to keep driving that into... Every time you smile, it just makes it worse. And they're just going to keep saying over and over again, no, it's our God. It's going to be in the prayer list. I feel it coming. So my point is, and I do have one, is that God is very jealous that all human beings, all creatures of earth, recognize that he is the only God, and he is angry and wrathful at everyone Anyone, any nation, any person who worships anything other than him, that ought to be a clue to us that we ought to make sure that all of our worship and all of our praise goes to him. Got that? Yes. Any questions? Any comments? Anything else? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.